Happy New Now, one and all. Welcome back to Cafe Penumbra, your cyber cafe, where we exchange ideas about current events, hot topics, storytelling, plus all the things. Please do visit us and interact on our sister platform, the Cafe Penumbra Discord server. See the link in the show notes or seraphimpenumbra.com. Today we're discussing all things Vision Quest. But first, things that make you go, hmm. Now... This one's a little bit out of left field, but um, I'm personally no stranger to imposter syndrome. Um, and when a friend of mine, we're actually chatting on the Discord, uh, confided in me that they were struggling with imposter syndrome, I wasn't entirely sure what to say. So on a hunch, I just went and Googled it real quick and I found this gem that I cross-referenced and, and found that it was echoed in many different perspectives. Imposter syndrome disproportionately affects higher achievers who cannot accept their own accomplishments. Now, for me, that was extremely helpful, though admittedly, I don't think that my friend took much comfort in it. But just the idea that usually people who experience this malady are already higher achievers meant that the feeling of imposter syndrome is mostly experienced by people who are in fact not imposters. Now, if this is something that you happen to be struggling with, please contact your mental health care. Obviously, knowing that you aren't an imposter isn't going to resolve the issue, but that was just my little nugget for today. I'm just getting back to the lab after a very long weekend uh, upstate New York where I was invited to create a speakeasy in a barn for a burner event. And driving home, it was absolutely bittersweet because I had just spent this weekend fully immersed in loving community. And here I am driving back to my life. I couldn't help but reflect on that dichotomy. I did think that it was synchronistic that I had that weekend before recording today's episode. I'm curious, how many of you all have been to Burning Man? I have not. The closest I have come was um, a number of rainbow gatherings, a few radical fairy gatherings, and also I spent almost a year at Omega Institute. And I mention all these things because if we were looking at like a Venn diagram, uh, these, these circles would all overlap in some way. One doesn't replace the other, but I kind of feel like they are different paths to an overlapping set of perspectives. Let's say that. So among these different uh, places that I have mentioned, there I find that there is an element of seeking of, of, of finding community and art and self-discovery, right? The main reason I've never been to Burning Man is because it is incredibly expensive on top of transporting yourself plus camping gear, your art, your refinery, water, and food. I mean, you can find resources there, but part of part of the kind of manifesto is radical self-reliance. So really, if you're going to go for this um, sojourn into the desert, you want to go having prepared enough food and water for yourself because it's still the desert, you know. Um, but that's a lot. All that adds up. I think maybe if I had been more 
financially stable when I was doing my journeying, AKA when I was in my twenties, I, I probably would have gone, but probably the closest I ever actually got was, um, I feel like on the West coast more so there were a lot of either decompression parties after or fundraising parties, um, for specific camps to go in. That's how they would raise the capital to, in part, to subsidize the cost of, you know, whatever they were providing to the community there. Not to say that journeying is something that you like graduate from or seeking. I feel like there's always going to be some learning, some growing to do, but I just don't feel drawn um, if that makes sense. And that's personal, you know, like everybody has their own trip, their own journey. And for me, it just, I never wound up crossing paths with the burn itself. But anyway, I think seeing it, I think seeing the art would be, especially now, um, the last, <laughs> I feel like the way that technology is expanding and also downsizing, there's a lot of stuff that you can do with art that involves technology that I think is part of what we're seeing in the installations of art in the burn, uh, allegedly, because I have never been. There's a lot of photography and I've, I've seen, obviously I know a lot of people who go and um, I think I get the gist. <laughs> oh, well, for, I, think, I think the immersion in community sounds amazing. And maybe someday I will make it to a burn, but for now, let's see what dictionary.com thinks vision questing is. It was related. <laughs> Especially among some North American Indians, the ritual seeking of personal communication with the spirit world through visions that are induced by fasting, prayer, and other measures during a time of isolation, typically undertaken by an adolescent male. That was from dictionary.com. Vision Quest, a supernatural experience in which an individual seeks to interact with a guardian spirit, usually an anthropomorphized animal, to obtain advice or protection. Vision Quests were most typically found among the native peoples of North and South America. The specific techniques for attaining Vision Quests varied from tribe to tribe, as did the age at which the first quest was to be undertaken, its length and intensity, and the expected form of the guardian spirit's presence or sign. In some tribes, nearly all young people traditionally engaged in some form of Vision Quest, as participation in the experience was one of the rituals marking an individual's transition from childhood to adulthood. In other groups, vision questing was undertaken only by the males, with menarche and childbirth as the analogous experience for females. That's very interesting. Some groups, notably in South America, limited vision quests and guardian spirits to shamans, religious personages with powers of healing and psychic transformation. Usually, an individual's first quest was preceded by a period of preparation with a religious specialist. The quest itself typically involved going to an isolated location and engaging in prayer while foregoing food and drink for a period of up to several days. Some cultures augmented fasting and prayer with hallucinogens. In some traditions, the participant would watch for an animal that had behaved in a significant or unusual way. And in others, the participant discovered an object, often a stone, that resembled some animal. 
In the predominant form, the initiate had a dream, the vision, in which a spirit being appeared. Upon receiving a sign or vision, the participant returned home and sought help in interpreting the experience. Not all vision quests were successful. Religious specialists generally advised individuals to abandon a given attempt if a vision was not received within a prescribed period of time. The techniques of the vision quest were fundamental to every visionary experience in Native American culture, whether undertaken by ordinary people seeking contact with and advice from a guardian or by great prophets and shamans. It was not unusual for vision quests to be integral parts of more elaborate rituals such as the Sundance of the Plains Indians. Despite having been heavily discouraged by Christian missionaries and even outlawed by colonial governments during the during the 19th and 20th centuries, vision quest participation continued as an important cultural practice for many indigenous peoples of the early 21st century. And that little, um, that last section was from www.britannica.com. Vision quest as a concept is something that has had an amazing appeal for me from a very young age. And it was surprising to me how many times I recognized it creeping into entertainment marketed to children. Winnie the Pooh, um, is it Puffalumps and Woozles? There's a whole kind of dream sequence in, in one of the Winnie the Pooh um, features that to me indicates very clearly that they're referring to this idea of an entheogen a mind-altering experience, right? Um, Rudolph, uh, I love claymation anyway. That's probably half of the reason why I'm in a, a degree program for animation, although that's digital. So, But I have heard that 3D animation very closely mimics the pipeline or the workflow for stop-motion animation. But anyway... Uh, the, the uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas special is from, golly, I don't remember, the 30s, 40s. And of course, in, in this one, the theme is the your underdog, which was the theme for an event we curated for the Never Never Party. And I believe I actually have a flyer from that that I'll put somewhere, but I, I think our party was called the Isle of Misfit Toys. Or maybe it was just the Misfits, but it was a nod to that, and we, we encouraged people to address as characters from that. But the point being that that is something that stayed with me from childhood age to when I was in my 20s and in New my mid-late 20s in New York City working with a group of folks, very underground, curating events and uh, things. And it seemed like it wasn't even referential that we threw that event like we didn't have to have a discussion about it. It was just like in part of like our vocabulary in this way. And I feel like that's how, you know, that's how, you know, but I will post, <laughs> I will post a picture of that flyer from what, 2002, 2003, maybe it'll probably be on the flyer, but I'll post that on my Insta. Uh, and if you tag this episode title, which is all things Vision Quest, on that post, you will win a free prize. So that's exciting. Fun prizes. So other references. Fantasia. 
I think that's a blatant reference to mind expansion. <laughs> I'll say, I'll just leave it at that. Probably there are essays that people have written in subsequent decades about, you know, tying all things of those things together. I didn't, I don't think I have seen any of that. It would probably be happening outside of my circle of awareness. So it probably does happen. Oh, so I did want to mention that, I don't, th this is a separate episode for sure. We're going to talk about genealogy, but I did have a DNA test done um, as part of my, as part of that thing. And it was really super interesting to see that like the most, the greatest percentage of my origins DNA wise is in Native America. I shouldn't say Native America, North America, but indigenous there's a, a lot of other origins in there as well. But to me, it just connects in this way that I would have this intrigue about a thing. But truly, it, in those years, I would, I would refer back to those instances, especially as we got closer and closer to like high school graduation. And there was all this, <laughs> I'm going to call it propaganda you got to get into a good school and you got to get a good job, like follow this path. And this is the, you know, this is what you're supposed to do. And I, I think partly there's another layer to this, but partly the fact that that wasn't working for me going through that set of hurdles or that obstacle course wasn't going to prepare me for the life that I was supposed to live. And I felt that, could have prevented me from experiencing access to like my authentic self because there is nothing in any institution, not that there have been many, but you know, in public education or, and I spent a lot of time in church as a young person, my family's church. And there was nothing in there that was designed to guide you to a deeper sense of self and purpose. And yet there they were just like cranking people out like a mill. It reminds me of that song from, is it from weeds that the little boxes, like how oh, just there were just cranking out cookie cutter versions. And I find that maybe, maybe a lot of the unrest is because people are realizing that, that that wasn't the path for themselves, you know? But if you're not paying attention and you're just on that railroad, that's where you're going. So I, I, I do feel fortunate in a way. I don't know why, you know, I mean, I could draw some lines and make some conclusions, but it's not something that you could ever really know definitively. But I don't know why all those examples, like when I watched Fantasia and when I watched Winnie the Pooh and when I watched... Rudolph, like the, that idea of the underdog going on a journey to get something that wasn't there and that they didn't even know if existed, but they had to go, right? They, they had to find out. I feel like, I guess it's been a while since I've watched Rudolph. I don't feel like the guy who travels in Rudolph knows where he's going when he starts, right? I don't remember. It's, I should have watched it in preparation for this. I'm sorry. 
So at some point in there, I probably looked in an encyclopedia because there was no online database of information yet. And I probably went to the library. I guess microfiche would have been the equivalent, right? To research some some more about, the, and this isn't for this podcast, this was probably during, well, I shouldn't say probably, it was definitely during my adolescence. Just to see if I could find more information about this thing. And, you know, I don't think at that point that I was thinking I would go. I probably don't think I had the stones to do it. But I was just intrigued by it for whatever that was worth. Like I, what what I was going to do with what I found out, I guess, was to save it until later, until I went on my own vision quest. Um, but it wasn't intentional. I wasn't gathering information because I was going to do something with it. I was just probably undiagnosed neurodivergent and obsessing about a thing. <laughs> probably they also weren't diagnosing that in those days. But this idea of, of you know, that, that like I, I was reading about from, I think, Britannica, of the solitude in nature and praying for a vision. And I read about this. This is a theme. Put a pin in this. I read about this idea that the quester would appear before their parents, which is kind of, you know, similar to what I read from Britannica, where they would uh, appear before a spiritual guide or what have you and help them interpret their their vision, right? Or their experience. And somewhere in the, that I could not find when I was researching for this episode, um, but I distinctly remembered from that adolescent period where I was information questing, right? Coming across this idea that the mother would be able to sense whether the child saw the right vision or, you know, whether or not it worked, right? And if it didn't, the mother would abandon the child. So that was part of what was in my head. And again, put a pin in that because I don't think I'm going to come back to it this episode, but um, <laughs> I will definitely come back. I always circle back. So like I said, I don't remember where I read that, but that stuck with me, obviously. And I read, I read My Side of the Mountain by accident. I, I just happened to be reading it, which is very different from those other media pieces that I experienced, but still presenting this idea that if you aren't living the life that you dream of, you can literally go out and get closer to it at least. And like he, this, the kid in, in my side of the mountain, probably none of you will have read it or remember, but he goes, I think to Vermont to some uh, real estate that his family owns. So he's not like out in the wild, but he's a miner, and he goes and, makes flour out of acorns and like just has enough of a survival camping instinct to survive, which is pretty amazing. Um, and of course it's fiction, but it, it was inspiring and it had that message, right? That if, if something isn't right, you can go out and search for it. And I think that's a very simplified version of what it is that we're talking about, right? I don't, I, I wouldn't necessarily draw a direct line between those like Fantasia and, and vision questing. But I think that there is enough of a parallel to where, like I said, we're talking about the same set of information. I don't think that they're suggesting that you trip acid. Although, you know, I'm 
Switzerland. I just think it's about reinforcing that theme and how artists in a way are like hiding information in plain sight for for people like me to find a way out, right? And, you know, not to reiterate, but I, I, I just was definitely impacted. And again, probably because I was undiagnosed neurodivergent, um, most definitely with ADHD, going through the public school system. And, and I did okay with grades um, for the most part, you know, for things like, I, I, I guess on, part of, on some level, and I've still never changed my perspective on this, but this idea that at 17, you're supposed to have a well enough formed version of yourself that you can decide what it is that you want to go to college for and be and do as an adult contributing member of society. And I think now that it's 2023 and we're all very aware that a lot of these uh, educational institutions are in place to get students to enroll so that they can cha-ching for the federal loans um, and I think part of the reason why it's been such a disaster, I mean, I don't even need to conjecture on this. It's been well discussed in the media. But all the people who went to school for the thing, you know, actually, I, I haven't polled recently, but I know most of the people that I know do not work in the field that they were educated in. So it could be that they wouldn't necessarily have gotten there without the education that they got. It's just, it's just a broken symptom, I think, of of like a much bigger problem. I just remember thinking when I was like 16, how on earth am I supposed I have no clue. And honestly, on good days, I'm still like looking for ideas. And it's been a few years since then, right? But that whole time was super angst ridden for me, like it is for so many people, right? And I actually don't think that I I would have gone to college not that I didn't have the intelligence, but certainly like my my family wasn't in a position to financially support that endeavor. But it was mostly memorizing things and regurgitating them on command. So some maybe maybe it was just that I found a way to like do well. But I the point is that wasn't I don't have that information anymore. And you know that could be for a lot of different reasons. But the way that I learned the things that I had to be able to recite for a test did not serve me for the most part. So I think not that this is supposed to be about education reform, but just, just how I was feeling that the system that I was born into was not propelling me toward the future that I was supposed to have period. Right. I mean, they taught us how to make macaroni and cheese. I took like a home ec course, but they did not teach me how to balance a checkbook. And honestly, like that's math. And I don't find that very complicated. I still make mistakes, but math mistakes are people make them. But I feel like how to run a household budget would have been valuable um, information to have because I I feel like I just figured that out recently. But I feel like budgeting is something that's a lot easier when you have more money too. But anyway, I did end up going to college several times, in fact. And I kept circling back to this place where I was utterly, profoundly overwhelmed. I always had to work to support myself, which meant that I had to go through all of my school classes, do all my schoolwork, and then end up at some... I was cashier at a grocery store at one point, and then I went on to be a server and a bartender, as most of you know. And, and that was something that was beyond what I could handle. And I, I think too, you know, just to, to 
make it specific to my experience because obviously a lot of people manage to get through school and and don't have the kind of crises that I did. But I, I did, and we're going to talk about it in a little bit here, but I did have some other things going on. But part of that was that through from probably about age 16 until age probably 22, I didn't sleep much. Not overall, but like I, if I slept every other day on average, that was probably conservatively more than I actually slept. But I would go several days because I had stuff to do. And then I would have to study or, you know, get ready for the next thing that I had to do. So that was a way that I cheated the system to be, to accomplish more. But as you know, that has a, a shelf life. And, um, and I found out what it was for me a couple of times, right? So at one point, I was um, at school here in Providence, actually. And again, there were a lot of other circumstances that went along with it. But I was doing a show. I was in a relationship. I was in clubs and organizations. I had a full-time course load. And I was, I believe at that time, I was waiting tables at a Jewish convalescent home. But I also waited tables and worked at grocery stores and did whatever it was that I had to do to pay to eat and, you know, keep the bursar's office away from me, right? So at some point during that um, tribulation period, I circled back to this idea of creating a modern day vision quest for myself because I felt like I desperately, something was off the rails and I, no matter what I did and how hard I tried and how much work I put at a thing, I was drowning and it wasn't sustainable. I needed to find another way, another path to myself um, or I was going to kill myself continuing to try in the prescribed way for everyone else. So in a way, I didn't have much to lose. But when I started to talk about it to my peers um, and I, my parents, and they all thought I was crazy. Um, and maybe an, I think I was, um, but I thought this is how I deal with that, right? Uh and I think other people thought who really understood what it was that I was doing thought that I was brave, which is a word that keeps coming back to me and that I almost never apply to myself. And here's why. Given what you currently know about what I've said so far, it didn't take an act of bravery to try something else that was unproven. But when I felt, I felt like I had proved that the path that I was on was not working. It's hard to take ownership of that word brave when I didn't see that there were other options. So I packed up some stuff. Oh, I remember what I did. I, I worked third shift at, a, at Rand McNally, um, which I don't know if they're even still around, but it's a, a printer. They're not a publisher. It's, it was a printer. And they would make encyclopedias and Bibles and catalogs and maps, I guess, is probably what most people might be familiar with. And I thought when I, when I went to apply, I thought it, the money was pretty good, especially because I worked third shift, which as you can imagine, didn't leave a lot of time for sleeping. But I thought it was going to be so cool to be part of putting books into the world. And I think it was in a way, it was the, um, the underbelly of that because it was not clean. There's a lot of ink in the air and dust in the air and um, whatever. It was what it was. But when I tell you that I worked alongside people who'd been there for 10, 15, 20 years, and it just, you know, I think that's a personality 
thing too, but I, it would drive me mad. We, <laughs> you would change it up a little bit. So that was merciful, but you would, um, maybe be working on a conveyor belt. Very, I love Lucy, by the way, working on, on <laughs> working on a conveyor belt, say for example, unloading skids of finished books. Um, a skid is a pallet, right? Uh, onto a conveyor belt so that they could be boxed and shipped off to wherever it was that they were going to go. So think about that repetitive, like I'm picking piles of books off of a pallet and putting them on a conveyor belt. And so you would kind of watch your pile go down and anticipate getting to the bottom of the pile. But a forklift would come by and give you a new pallet to work on. So it was kind of a fake... <laughs> it was like a delayed gratification, but it wasn't gratifying because you just got more work to do. I guess job security, right? In my vision quest, I literally definitely, I think it was two parts. You could probably break it down a little bit more complicated, but part of it was to set your intention, cast your intention, which is a prayer or a spell or magic or whatever. But I literally said out loud that I was in search of a better way of life for myself, a deeper understanding of who I was, and a deeper understanding of what my purpose was. And I committed myself to that journey, and I would watch for signs. <laughs> that part does sound crazy. But literally, I paid attention, and I think I picked this up from... Celestine prophecy, maybe to pay attention for synchronicities and, and to follow those. And I got in my car and I drove West as, as one does when you're on the East coast, I guess <laughs> I would say ironically, but that is not what ironic means. Ultimately I wound up at um, Omega in Rhinebeck, New York by accident. I had found a catalog in the recycling at a family that I had been visiting in uh, the DC area. And that was a couple of months after I left Providence was just about out of money. And I didn't know where I was going to go and I didn't know what I was going to do. And I found that catalog and I, I don't remember what was on the cover, but I, whatever it was like, I, that was a synchronicity and I asked for permission to take it. I thought that was a little bit weird because it seemed like I was going through their mail, but it was it was in their recycling and they let me take it. And um, and I moved to Omega uh, within, a, I think within two months of that, of getting that catalog to where I worked and talk about being immersed in community. But they have the most amazing bookstore that I've ever been into in my entire life. And I think a trip to Omega just for the bookstore would be time well spent. But I read everything that I could understand, which wasn't a lot. The Celestine Prophecy. I don't remember if I read that before Omega or after. I read Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn, which I probably should have read before I left. I read Be Here Now by Ram Dass, and I read The Taboo by Alan Watts and all of it. And I definitely did eventually come to the conclusion that I didn't need to leave my life in order to do all that work. 
but I did. At Omega, there was something just so powerful about being immersed in it in, with all of the people being drawn there to learn. And more importantly, I lived there. So I didn't have to think about meals. That was one of my favorite things, no joke, because three times a day, they would blow a conch shell. It's like Shangri-La. I am not lying. I can't say that they still do that. This was in 95 that I was in uh, at Omega. And the conch shell meant that it was mealtime and you would go into the dining hall which was a big house that they'd converted into a kitchen and dining uh, building. It was beautiful. And it would be a buffet of everything. And if you didn't like it, then there was salad and there was a salad bar and there was flatbread crackers and organic peanut butter and jelly that they made from berries that they grew in the garden. And, um, and everybody would stop what they were doing and go through that buffet without having to shop or cook or clean or any of those things without thinking about whether I could make rent that month or if I could afford to buy groceries. And I think that part was certainly appealing, but I think also part of what propelled the learning because your sense of, well, for me, because my sense of the world that I lived in was radically changed because I didn't have to think about gas money and food, you know, all those things. It was just well, food's all set. I mean, I lived in a tent for a little while and then I moved into a cabin and at that time they had a trailer park and I lived in, uh, it wasn't a mobile home, but a, uh, like an RV that I lived in until I left. And I didn't have any bills. I mean, I at that point I was young enough that I didn't have like debt. So I didn't have bills to pay literally, which was a nice place to be in. But I think that that part of being able to suspend the mundane routine of life made it possible to access. And also, and this is something that I firmly believe since having been there, when you are that much closer to the sky as you are in the mountains, even in the Hudson River Valley, it's higher than where I am practically at sea level, the moon impacts you differently. The celestial bodies impact you differently. Like, I don't know if it, if it's a real thing, but for me it's real and that's what makes it real. But whenever there was a full moon, it was just like full moons were ecstatic. I can say that. The other thing that I found endlessly fascinating about Omega was that there were so many other people in a very similar position that I was in searching when we were at Omega in the summer of 1995, there were over 300 people from all over the world that were brought in and handpicked to run the facility for that season. So that's just 300 people like me, not to mention the thousands and thousands of people that would come in. So if you're not, I probably should have started with this, but if you're not familiar with Omega, it is a... Um, a holistic resource center and they they give workshops on everything you can possibly imagine from yoga to tai chi kirtan um drawing on the left side of the brain songwriting any possible art that you can think of or uh eastern philosophy that you can possibly want to learn more about you can most likely find it at omega so there was that element too it was a brilliant crossroads right a brilliant gathering place for people who were searching for that knowledge, right? And I just thought it was amazing and, and magic and wonderful. And uh, I should go back.
Uh, I haven't been since 1995. Then later, probably about a year after that, was when I found um, my. It was when I was at my first rainbow gathering, um, and it was that was a trip unto itself. But I feel like, you know, again, you're it's this community of people of of. I mean, drifters, sure, but like some there's a contingent of seekers um, who constantly tour the continent for gatherings uh, as they take place or used to take place in state parks for uh, for those gatherings. And of course, the internet was still a blushing virgin at this point, but they had managed to utilize bulletin boards to communicate with each other, which I thought was all kind of amazing considering the almost total lack of technology by comparison to today. But more than that, I think it was empowering to learn that the resistance was in fact fertile. I was in Osceola in Florida. And when I, when the camp that I was with first hiked in and found other people, there were about, I think there were scouting, there were about 30 people. And then within a, within a few days, there were hundreds of people. And within a few days, there were thousands of people who set up a little village in the national forest. And it was just staggeringly amazing. Like talk about a cross section of people that you, you just could never talk to everybody and hear everybody's story. Um, and then back to Burning Man, which I have never been to, like I said earlier, but certainly have been immersed in enough burner culture when, especially when I was in Northern California to have an understanding of what it was all about. And to be perfectly honest, Burning Man terrifies me. I mean, maybe not so much anymore, but anytime it was ever possibly on the horizon, I was like, oh, I don't think so. Even though I know that so many people find it extremely transformative, I have also been around long enough to um, to see some darkness. And I don't really want to talk about that exactly, but as I mentioned, I had been to the temple and I had been to the mountain and I partook of the entheogen. So why keep hitting that button? The I guess part of the point is that especially today, the separation of who who we are and what our purpose is, is still a foundation of modern society. And it's optional. You don't have to go to Burning Man or go on a vision quest. But for many people, it provides a significant enough paradigm shift to get the good stuff to bubble up, you know, or maybe you don't know. What do I mean when I say bubble up? Well, for me, the, the clearest manifestation of bubbling up happened for me when I was watching Hedwig. And I know this sounds crazy. It makes no sense. It's uh, It didn't make sense then. It still doesn't make sense. I've told the story a bunch of times. I cannot figure out why or how it happened, but this was my experience. Um, I saw it in the, the theater for the first time after it had been made into a film. And as I said, I thought it was great. I loved the music. I thought it was beautiful. I loved the makeup. I liked the story. And something about taking in that story caused this bubbling up for me, which in this case was a memory that I had deeply, deeply buried of my mother telling me when I was 18, after my entire life campaigning and being on this crusade for me to be normal and act like a normal boy, she told me that I was in fact born intersex and that the doctors had advised her to raised me as a boy after I'd had the surgery that I had and kind of like hope for the best. The best was not something that was available. 
But I think in that moment, looking at my mother and realizing that I had been born perfect the way that I was, but they carried on the charade almost my entire life to make me think that I was broken so that I could have a normal life was so profoundly powerful that I couldn't engage it. And that's why I think that I buried it. And I never had the faintest glimmer of a memory of that conversation, which I think is crazy how powerful denial can be until I sat in that theater with some friends watching Hedwig. The, the funny thing about Hedwig is that it had been in my periphery for years. I, 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 I remember seeing ads when it was a little touring show. I shouldn't say little. It was a, a touring production and it was in Boston. And I thought, oh, I should go see that. Like, because they were, I'm pretty sure that they were marketing it like um, Rocky Horror for the new generation kind of thing. Not that anything was wrong with the original Rocky Horror, but for me, that was effective marketing, but I guess not effective enough because I didn't go see it until 2001. So it was just kind of crazy. Yeah, it was 2001. It was very, it was within the time after 9-11 when I realized that I was never going to be able to get a job. <laughs> and um, for some reason, my friend said, let's go see this movie. And I, I remember thinking like, I have bus fare to get back to my parents' house in Massachusetts and you want to go see a movie. But we did. And that was my bubbling up experience. And, you know, I don't say it because it relates to vision questing. And, you know, in a sense, I, I do think that the intention of my journey brought me to that moment, maybe not directly and specifically for that moment, but I think that it was intentional by on the part of the universe or the multi-omniverse. Um, and I, I, I don't really think that that's the kind of thing that most people get out of their vision quest. But for me, you know, after the life that I had led to that point, it made perfect sense and I was ready for it. And I think that that was part of it too. I was um, ready to deal with, you know, my truth and to like boldly and authentically live my, my truest self without apology. And, and I think I actually was empowered by that. I, I, I don't have any regrets, but I, I kind of wish that I could go back and tell myself that I had permission to have the strength to have engaged with my mother's revelation at age 18 instead of whatever age I was in 2001. I don't want to math. <laughs> 20, my late mid-20s. I stayed there for a long time. So let me go back to Omega. So when we were at Omega, one of the experiences that I got to have is that I participated in a guided shamanic journey with um, Geo Cameron, who is a Celtic shaman in a small group of seekers. And during that journey, we were looking for a stag to get its message. And I looked and I tried. First, I wasn't sure what a stag looked like. So I a little bit got caught up with that and I, I didn't have a successful journey. I just kind of tried to be quiet until it was over. But I did, I did get a little bit caught up with that. A little later that summer on the way to a full moon circle in Bearsville, we had a group journey and I saw a caterpillar in a mine cart underground in a mining cave. Not a mining cave, but you know, like tunnel, I guess. And eventually the cart emerged into daylight and there was this wild west looking town with like wooden sidewalks and a man dressed in black was walking toward me and saying something. It was gibberish maybe, or like I could see that his lips were moving, but I couldn't hear what he was saying. 
So that was really frustrating. But like I said, I eventually went on a trip to explore ghost towns in Arizona and New Mexico. And hand on Bible, I saw that guy in Bisbee, Arizona in 1999. And we went on to have a number of other metaphysical experiences that summer. And I, and I did talk about them in more detail in the book that I'm not supposed to talk about yet. So, oops. Then a few years later, when I was in New York, I went to a guided journey. And this time we were supposed to find the stag again, but I felt like I knew I was a little bit more familiar with what a stag was supposed to look like. And we were supposed to ask him how to remove the veils of illusion from our lives. Good question, huh? I'm not sure if I knew then exactly what a stag was supposed to look like, but at least I didn't let it prevent me from finding him. Um, but he was also the only other living creature that I encountered where we were. And he was um, a little bit sphinxy and like a little bit liony in places and maybe deery in other places. Maybe my brain made up that deery was staggy. I don't know. I keep making up words. I'm doing air quotes, I promise. When I asked the stag to reveal the veils of illusion in my life, he laughed like belly laughed, if a stag can belly laugh at all, for a while. And finally he said, I'm sorry, that just struck me as hilarious because you create the veils of illusion in your life. So why would you ask me how to remove them? And then he laughed a little bit more and I was like, okay, very good point. And of course my stag would be literally laughing in my face. Like that is so on brand for all my mystical experiences, but the major foundation of my vision quest, like I said, was intention and attention. So I cast my intention. In my case, I articulated it and spoke it into the world. And some people would call that an incantation. Um, and then I paid attention to the coincidences. And this was in 1994. So imagine my surprise when I was watching The Matrix a few years later and find that their world creation had a specific correspondence with coincidences. Like, they're using the word coincidence the way that I used synchronicity, right? I mean, except theirs was like a glitch, but I feel like in either, in either way, it's a clue. Like we just figured out Blue's Clues. Like I said, the first major one for me was finding um, Omega in a catalog that had been mailed to the mother of a friend that I was visiting in D.C., and I do want to say that Vision Quest isn't necessarily for everyone. And it did occur to me that I went a very long way to find something that was really there all the time. But for me, there was no other thing in the world that I was born into that provided a foundation for me to discover that deeper understanding of self and purpose. And that was like somehow I at least knew that I needed that, right? It may work for some, but in my case, when so many of my circumstances were manipulated against my will and participation, but I can see that by changing the parts of the world that had influence over me, as if somehow opting out, ended up revealing more to me than I was able to see otherwise. And like I said, when I set out on my journey, everybody said that I was crazy and brave, and maybe both were true. In my case, I came radically closer to a sense of self and purpose, even identity that in a way gave my original power back. I won't say that my life is perfect now because of it, and I can't claim like any kind of enlightenment or even that I finished, but I can say that I would not change a single thing. That is all things Vision Quest. Let's keep the conversation alive. And remember, it's only a conversation when ideas are exchanged. So please do head over to our Discord and weigh in. Next time, we'll be talking about homesteading, urban off-grid or otherwise. Thanks for stopping by Cafe Penumbra. I'm your host, Seraphim Penumbra, wishing you a jolly new now.